Welcome to this special Maples Group Employment and Tax podcast. I'm Andrew Quinn, and I'm joined by Karen Killalay, who is head of our Irish Employment Law Group, and Will Fogarty, who is a tax partner with our Irish law firm. We're here to talk about a hugely significant Irish Supreme Court decision just handed down, where the Supreme Court looked at whether delivery drivers were employees are independent contractors. It is a long-running case in Ireland, very high profile, followed closely not just in Ireland, but internationally, where, of course, similar issues have been looked at in the US, in Europe and the UK. Uh, And indeed, in the UK, a decision has also just been handed down by the UK Supreme Court, and we'll be touching on that later. So, Will, technically... This is a tax case, so I'll start with you. Can you give us the background? Of course. Thanks, Andrew. So this case involves a pizza shop which operated as a Domino's franchise in the Midlands of Ireland. They had drivers who delivered the pizzas. Very simply, they said the drivers were self-employed. Revenue argued they were employees. Revenue raised tax assessments for payroll tax for 215,000 for the years 2010 and 2011. Karshan, the uh, taxpayer, appealed this to the appeals commissioner, who decided that the drivers were indeed employees. That decision was issued in 2018. The case was then appealed to the High Court, who agreed they were employees. The Court of Appeal heard the appeal in 2022 and reversed everything and said, no, 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 these people are not employees. And the Supreme Court took up the case and in 2023 held that they were employees. So that's where we are now. Revenue were ultimately right and therefore the tax assessments for 2010 and 2011 will probably have to be discharged. Thanks, Will. So Karen, if I'm a business and I've hired individuals as independent contractors, what does the Domino's case mean for me? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Will. So the significance of the Domino's decision for employers and for workers is is really that the decision by Mr. Justice Murray, which is a unanimous decision of the Irish Supreme Court, has now restated and clarified the tests which need to be applied in any given situation to assess the correct characterization of a working relationship between an employer and a worker. So the decision runs to 191 pages, which is a little eye-watering, but it is an extensive analysis of the development of the law over the past uh, century or so. But as I say, most importantly for employers in Ireland, it clarifies and simplifies the tests which employers should apply in order to really determine whether they have a misclassification risk, which is what we refer to it as in respect of their workforce. And and that's a misclassification risk, if you like, both from an Irish tax and an Irish employment law perspective. So the situation now, Andrew, is that employers really have a five-step test which they can apply in order to be certain that the workers that they engage are genuinely independent contractors and not employees. So before I run through the tests, just to back up here a little bit, previously the case law and indeed guidance which was prepared and published by Revenue had indicated that the essential, if you like, we call it a gateway test to classifying a worker correctly was whether the parties satisfied the mutuality of obligation test. Okay, so the way we as employment lawyers approach this analysis was to assess whether there was mutuality of obligation between the parties. And and broadly, if you didn't have mutuality of obligation, then there couldn't be a contract of employment. But in truth, this test of mutuality of obligation, it's been difficult. It's been difficult to understand. 
It's been difficult to apply and its expression has been sort of molded and changed and manipulated over the years through the case law, which, which basically meant it was quite difficult in any given situation to predict how a court would in fact view a working relationship. Okay. So it's it's clear now arising out of the Domino's decision that the test as to mutuality of obligation has actually been hugely simplified. And really now the parties need to pose the following question. Is there an obligation to work in exchange for an entitlement to pay? Okay, so it's clear from the judgment that if you have those two ingredients, an obligation to work and a right to be paid for that work, then crucially, that makes the contract capable of being a contract of employment, but it's not going to be determinative. So what I might do is that sort of sets the scene. So we still have a version of the mutuality of obligation test, but I think it's going to be much easier to apply in practice than it was before the Supreme Court decision. But let's take a look at the other four limbs of the test. I mentioned a few moments ago that there are now sort of five limbs. So the first is the, the let's call it the mutuality of obligation. And let's look at the other four limbs. The first is to look at whether personal services required. So if the worker, for example, is able to substitute somebody else to do the work, but the original worker is still paid for that work, then that is probably more indicative of an independent contractor arrangement. However, if, as in the, the Karshan or the Domino's pizza case, the worker has a limited ability to substitute someone else, even if it's written into the contract that they can, but if in practice they have a limited ability to substitute somebody else to do the work, then that's going to be more indicative of an employment relationship. So just to look at the, the, the other three limbs, if you like, the next limb is whether or not the employer exercises control over the worker. That's a long-standing, well-established test, so no change there. The third limb of it is to analyse whether the operational working arrangements between the parties are more consistent with an employment relationship or a contractor relationship. And this is kind of where it gets interesting. This is where you need to look very carefully at the factual matrix. So as I mentioned already, you know, does the worker provide the services themselves personally? How independent is that worker in reality? For example, are they rostered? Do they have to give their availability a week in advance? Are they told how to dress? Do they use their own equipment or the client's equipment? Do they provide insurance? Who issues the invoices? You know, it goes on and on. Another key aspect of this is the extent to which the workers are able to turn a profit. Are they able to mould and use their resources to actually influence the net income that they derive from the engagement. For example, in the Domino's case, the drivers in question were deemed by the Supreme Court really not to take on any economic risk whatsoever. They couldn't and didn't scale their businesses. They couldn't scale their businesses to any other particular market and their ability to maximise their own profits was pretty limited. Integration is another piece that needs to be looked at. You know, how integrated are the workers into the business? The classic sort of test, you know, do they turn up at the summer barbecue and the Christmas party and, and so forth. And finally, there is a final limb to that test, which is, look, do you have to take into account any other law or regulation which governs the relationship and which needs to be factored into the analysis? So one other point that I think will be useful uh, for listeners as they reflect on the on the five tests is to understand how the delivery drivers actually operated. So the delivery drivers in the Karshan case had entered into an overarching agreement, which was an independent contractor's agreement and that's sometimes referred to as an umbrella agreement. And it contained what would have been regarded as the sort of essential ingredients for an independent contractor agreement, which tended to suggest that it was truly 
an independent contractor arrangement. So, for example, it included a clause that provided there was no obligation to work and no obligation to provide work on the part of Karshan. The drivers filled out an availability sheet in the week before the rosters were drawn up. The drivers could decide not to turn up for work if they had been rostered. But in a situation where they didn't, then they would not be paid. When the drivers did turn up to work, they had to wear a branded uniform. They had to be presentable. They were subject to uniform checks. When their rostered shift started, they had to, you know, check in, arrange their cash flows, as I say, be presentable. Their vehicle had to be insured. They clocked in, they clocked out. They were told how many pizzas they could deliver at a time. And crucially, when they were not driving, sometimes they were asked to assemble boxes in store. Interestingly enough as well, Karshan also prepared the invoices for them. So all of these taken together, as Will had mentioned, means that the Supreme Court decided on balance that these individuals looked more like they had a contract of employment than an independent contractor arrangement. Thanks, Karen. Will, you and I were chatting earlier and you were pointing out to me the difference between the gig economy and the platform economy. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So this is a case about what's called the gig economy. The gig economy is people who get work from time to time. It is sporadic. So delivery drivers is one example, but there are many other examples. People would class people like Uber drivers as part of the gig economy. But I think it's important to to make reference to the fact that this is a case from 2010 and 2011. There is a further development in the gig economy, which we call the platform economy. And in the platform economy, there's still occasional work being given to somebody. But instead of being hired by a pizza shop, they are contracted to somebody who runs an app or an online platform. So we call that the platform economy. And I think it's, 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 there's a lot of excitement about this case, but people have to realise it's, it's now referencing facts that are 12 to 13 years old. And actually, if you look at the more recent case in the UK, which again concerned a series of delivery drivers, that's closer to the platform economy. I think it's useful to think about the two slightly differently, because certainly the platform economy and the analysis of employment there is different and presents a different fact pattern to what we're talking about here in 2010 Domino's land. Great. Thanks. And I know we're going to come back to the UK Supreme Court case a bit later. Karen, with the Domino's case, does the decision mean that those drivers are now automatically employees? Yeah, it's it's a good question, Andrew. And it's a question that we have received from, from clients since this decision was handed down. And the short answer is no, it does not from an Irish employment law perspective. So as Will has already outlined, this is a case which assessed the correct classification, if you like, of the working relationship for, for tax purposes. But from an Irish employment law perspective, the workers are not automatically employees. That said, as a result of this decision, however, it is possible that workers in the gig economy, based on the principles in the Supreme Court decision, the Irish Supreme Court decision, may wish to assert employment rights. And if they wish to do so, they will need to do that before the appropriate form, which in Ireland is the Workplace Relations Commission. So, I mean, I suppose by way of general comment, what, what I would say is that it, that isn't a novel or an unusual claim. And, and I'm not sure that the Domino's Supreme Court case is, is now a watershed which will open the floodgates for this. We have seen many, many times in practice that it is not unusual for long-serving independent contractors to claim protection under, for example, the Unfair Dismissals Acts or anti-retaliation protection under the Protected Disclosures Act, or sometimes they will look for paid holidays. 
In our experience in typically defending these cases on the part of Irish employers, we find that these issues tend to crystallise where there's a dispute with the contractor um, and the contractor relationship is terminated. So that's not to say that contractors who are working under this type of umbrella contract as there was in the Karshan case cannot and do not uh, take these claims. And, and sometimes they will choose not to because it doesn't suit them. But another, I think, important point to bear in mind is the Supreme Court case in Domino's did not actually look at whether any of these workers had continuous and reckonable service, for example. And those are important concepts from an Irish employment law perspective. Frequently, eligibility for Irish employment statutory rights will have an eligibility gateway, if you like. So you either need to have a certain continuity of service or you need to have a certain duration of service and so forth. So, for example, under the minimum notice legislation in Ireland, continuous employment is not broken by dismissal, followed by immediate rehiring. Under the Unfair Dismissals Act, continuity of service is generally not broken if you're rehired within three months. So many pieces of employment protection legislation have minimum service requirements and the Supreme Court decision didn't actually look at that. And so that is another issue for another day. Yeah, quite a bit to it, isn't there, Karen? I mean, if I'm a business listening to this, what should I be doing after this Domino's case? Andrew, I think what employers in Ireland need to do is consider their own individual contracting arrangements and consider it by reference to the five-factor test that we've just talked about and to use that to determine the correct characterization of the working arrangement. I, I think it's fair to say that the Supreme Court has provided employers in Ireland with a good roadmap to navigate the area of assessing whether the correct characterization is one of an independent contractor or one of an employment relationship. And where there are clear signs that point to the existence of an employment relationship, then the employers need to take steps to regularise that relationship and to document it correctly. Great. So, Will, moving back to tax, what have Irish Revenue had to say about the case? They are very pleased with it, I understand. They've been uh, at it for a number of years now. So they're, they're, they're relieved and I expect elated by the clarification that has been given. Very quickly after the decision was issued, they released some additional guidance and they pointed directly at the decision and stripping through it effectively, what they said to people was, you should review your contractual arrangements with your staff and assess whether or not they are in fact employees applying the tests as set out by the Supreme Court. They then went on to say, if you feel you have not been deducting payroll taxes and feel you would like to come clean to the revenue, please do so. And they included a link to their voluntary disclosure section. So I think we can see it say two things as a result of this. Firstly, I think revenue are definitely going to look at historic employment arrangements. And two, I do think employers should review their own position and unless they want to knock on the door and a tax assessment, perhaps consider whether or not they should make a disclosure to revenue to seek to remedy perhaps historic failures to apply payroll tax. And what might those tax exposures be if there had been a misclassification? This can get very expensive. First of all, what's the difference between being an employee and a, and, and a self-employed person? If you have somebody who is self-employed, there is no employer's PRSI and you have no PAYE obligations, so you pay them gross. If, however, they're an employee, first of all, you must account for employer's PRSI, which is a meaningful amount of money, about 11% here in Ireland. And secondly, 
the employer has an obligation to deduct Irish income tax, universal social charge, and employees PRSI. Now, this is much easier explained with an example. Say somebody is earning 30,000 a year. The amount that should be withheld from them is generally around 4,000. You can add employers PRSI onto the 30,000 and you get up to about a tax bill of about 7,000 per annum. And that tax is assessable against the employer. If you don't pay, you can get into interest and penalties pretty quickly. So after a year or so, that liability of 7,000 can look closer to 10,000. Now, that's an issue when you consider the timelines here. These cases date from 2010. Practically, revenue will generally only go back four years. So again, on my my 30,000 example, you could be looking at a liability of somewhere between 25 and 35,000 over a four-year period. That's not the end of the story, however. There's a regrossing risk on payments. This applies to payments post-2019. If there's been a complete failure to operate payroll tax, revenue can regross the amount. Effectively, they pretend that the employee was paid post-tax and allowed to keep the money. So to take you back to the 30,000 example, if you applied regrossing, then you're not looking at 7,000 of a tax bill, you're looking at 11,000 of a tax bill. So technically, one could seek to recoup this from the employee or get a credit for any tax they paid. But I don't think people are going to be surprised to know that people in the gig economy tend not to stick around it for years and years and years. And they tend not to be the type of people who are doing self-assessment tax returns. So it can get quite complicated and expensive if you're being audited on this employment tax risk. Thanks, Will. Let's just touch on something new that we've been seeing, which is where specialist insurance companies insure various types of business risk, including in some cases tax risk. I think we've seen this issue come up, haven't we, in the context of those insurance companies. Yeah, th- that's right. We've seen we've seen it in two different fronts. The first is obviously gig economy type uh, employers are, are not they're not rare. So we have seen instances where people are buying or selling companies that have s- contractors and the buyer has said we're very nervous about this historic tax risk. Th- the numbers as I've explained can get pretty big pretty quickly. So one of the solutions to that to allow the transaction to proceed is to ensure the tax risk at the point of buying the company. And then for a reasonable premium with a decent fact pattern, you can at least close off the historic risk or at least get an insurer to bear that risk. So that's the first instance we've seen it. Since this decision, actually, we've had a number of conversations with people who've said, we've been running our business for five years, we're not for sale. But if this tax risk was to come home to roost, we would be sunk. And in those instances, we call those static instances, you can go to an insurance, a, a t- specialist tax insurer and get that risk insured. So at least it comes off the list of things to worry about. That can be particularly important, again, if you're looking at large amounts of money and perhaps there could be an audit note into the accounts or there could be a liability booked. So it could really impact the business. And in both of these instances, we've seen insurance brokers are are keen to price and to do that insurance. So that's a neat solution for people who are looking to perhaps box off the financial liability. Yeah. And as you say, it's one we saw much more commonly as the Domino's case worked its way through the various courts over the past few years. Karen, I suppose one thing that I've taken away from this is we have a a very binary outcome in Ireland. An individual is either an employee or an independent contractor. 
as an employee, there's a lot of legal obligations on both sides. I suppose my own personal view is there's a lot to be said that we're both individual and the business want flexibility. There can be good justification for that. But do other countries approach things any differently to Ireland? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think they do is the, is the short answer. And my understanding is that there are a number of jurisdictions actually where um, the local parliaments are introducing legislation just to bring greater clarity to this whole area and to the rights and protections that gig economy workers will have. So that includes, for example, the Netherlands, Australia, India and the US as well as Italy. But you, you just pick up on a point there about how binary this is. And what we don't have in Ireland, and which is a feature in the UK, is this sort of worker status, which is this almost intermediary status between being an employee and being an independent contractor. And that, that's an in, a very interesting um, proposition. And those workers, for example, as I understand it, um, under English law, have certain employment style rights, such as the right to written statement of terms and conditions, the rights to a certain level of pay, protection against discrimination and certain working time rights. So we don't have that here in Ireland at the moment. And I think that would be an interesting development. And as you say, make it a little less binary if we did have that. There's just two other pieces that I wanted to just bring to listeners' attention, which are very recent developments, if you like. So the first is just to pick up on something Will said earlier about platform workers. And it's absolutely correct that really the 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 fact pattern in the Domino's case is a little bit dated. Um, and the vast majority of the gig economy workers nowadays are probably for the most part working off platforms. So the EU does have a platform workers directive currently being drafted and it's expected to be concluded in the spring of next year and most likely coming into force probably around 2026 if it is in fact concluded next year. So that's definitely one to watch out for and we're sort of following that as it goes through the legislative process. But just to give you a couple of highlights from that. So the directive once enacted will create a rebuttable presumption that an employment relationship exists when a platform exercises control over the workers. So as I say, it is in draft form and this could change, but that's what it currently looks like. And so control is then... um, defined. It has a number of different uh, possible manifestations uh, according to the directive. And that includes, for example, control over pay, setting rules relating to appearance, supervision of work performance, the famous mutuality of obligation, limits on freedom for workers to organise and, and be members of trade unions and so forth. So as I say, definitely one to watch. I'll just touch briefly on the UK Supreme Court decision, uh, which was handed down the day before we have recorded this podcast, so hot off the presses. And this is a case taken by the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain, and Deliveroo was a party to those proceedings. In essence, the trade union was seeking collective bargaining rights in respect of Deliveroo riders in a particular part of London. So a unanimous UK Supreme Court has decided that the riders were not employees of the platform, which is interesting. So the judgment emphasised the fact that the riders could arrange for substitutes without the involvement of the platform and in fact did arrange for substitutes. So it was actually used in practice and not just embedded in the contract. It also found that the riders were free to reject work. They were free to make themselves unavailable, free to work for competitors and generally had a good deal of autonomy. So all of these features were described by the Supreme Court as fundamentally inconsistent with any notion of the employment relationship. So that's a really interesting decision and certainly sheds further light on this on this area. Thanks, Karen. As you say, hot off the press. 
And look, with that, thanks to Karen and Will for that fantastic overview of the situation to date. Some very practical points there for dealing with these changes. And thanks to everybody out there for joining us. Please do like and follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Do keep an eye out for our next employment and tax podcasts. And with that, bye for now.